Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, who everyone happens to be. This is Dr. Simon, and my show, as always, is called The Stories We Live By. And I want to talk about uh, normalcy and morality today and the relationship between the two. Uh, this show grows out of my last show. And my last show, I uh, discussed uh, the documentary that moved me so much called Gasland, uh, in which it um, exposes, uh, in a really good way, uh, kind of like what the muckrakers did in the 1920s, uh, when they exposed the meatpacking plants uh, uh, that were getting people sick. Um, there's a long history, which I'll try to t- explain better today than I did last time, of uh, people seeking profit uh, at somebody else's gain, uh, loss. Um, and corporations seem to behave, maybe more now than before, as perfect psychopaths. That is, without any regard to the harm they may be causing individuals and other people, uh, as they seek uh, for profits. Um, and this this particular show was revealing the fact that huge amounts of our uh, drinking water uh, is being damaged by drilling for natural gas uh, in the way we're doing it now uh, to give us so-called energy uh, independence by going down into the shale level of the earth and uh, sending down hot water and releasing gases that not only come up through the pipes uh, and to be collected for use uh, in whatever way they were going to be used, but working their way into crops, into the ground, into the air, and into the drinking water. And I asked the question, and my friend uh, uh, Jim Morrison, who maybe join me again tonight, um, uh, how would you diagnose such people? And he said, you don't diagnose them. That's normal behavior. And I thought so much about that. Um, You don't diagnose them because that's normal behavior. What you diagnose ostensibly is abnormal behavior. (laughs) And that's interesting. So I began to think about the show I had put together last time, suggesting that there's a defense mechanism operating here called denial. And that individuals who do this simply deny to themselves and others uh, that they're doing anything significantly damaging to others, but ultimately denying that they're damaging themselves. Because when the drinking water goes, uh, who's going to have anything to drink? Corporate executives, rich people, poor people, and all people need a certain amount of water that's clean and healthy for themselves and their families. Otherwise, we cease to exist. So I thought about this a lot. Um, uh, Along the way, and I want to add another dimension that serendipitously worked into this show, uh, I was on vacation up on uh, Long Island, uh, a town called East Hampton, uh, in the Hamptons, a beautiful place. And there's a lovely bookstore that I always go into when I'm there. And I happened to see a book called The Righteous Mind by a psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. And I don't buy books anymore. I download them onto, first it was a Nook and now my e-pad. Uh, and I can make the print 
large enough for me to read without my eyes being strained, and I enjoy reading that way enormously. Uh, books are much cheaper that way, too. In fact, somebody gave me a, a uh, email address, a, a web address, where you can download books for free. And I haven't been able to work that out yet, but I have to talk to them and see if I can do that. But anyway, the books that you buy, uh, that that you download, uh, electron e-books, are much less expensive, probably half for less than half the price of regular books. But in any event, I read this book, and it's going to play um, a big role in my discussion. So I began to think, what do I say that broadens the conversation? So that we're not simply talking about a defense mechanism, that is, something we do psychologically to deny and distort reality so that we don't have to feel guilty or fearful or, or something else. And I thought I would go along with Haidt's book, Jonathan Haidt's book, um, The Righteous Mind, which is based in evolutionary psychology and a lot on anthropology. And the combination of being a psychologist, trained psychologist, and uh, immersing yourself in these other fields, and uh, I had immersed myself for a while in political science and some economics so that I could bring that into my own personal theory. Uh, but he, he brought this in, um, especially to anthropology, so you look at other cultures, and you could look at similarities across cultures and difference across cultures, uh, and it really broadens your view. But it's the evolutionary psychology that I want to talk about. One of the things that's denied by many people, forbidden according to uh, religious teaching, is uh, Darwin's theory of evolution and its modern variations. Uh, things that were added, for example, the idea of the selfish gene by Richard Dawkins, uh, Powerful, powerful stuff that in the last 10 or 15 years of my own theory building and my teaching, I brought in. And it was, it was so interesting, the, the experience I had. Uh, I had a very wide range of students, backgrounds, religions, um, some uh, you know religions that were cosmopolitan, uh, that I would call modern religions, that they had been, the ideas had been leavened. Uh, by science and by uh, by mixing with large numbers of people, as can so easily happen if you live in New York City, particularly a place like city, New York City, um, which demands a very different socialization process than if you live in a town where everybody is of the, goes to the same church or you know uh, has the same kind of lifestyle. Uh, but this is very different. And I had students. Um, for example, when I would start to talk about evolution, who would say, excuse me, Professor, uh, I have to leave the room. I'm not allowed to listen to this. And uh, some of these were Orthodox Jews. Some were Muslims. They had apparently uh, talked about me to their religious leaders because when you're very much involved in these Orthodox uh, groupings, and I'll resist the word uh, cult, because uh, I go along with Jonathan Haidt that one of the things we've been doing for too long is uh, those of us who tend to be uh, intellectuals and liberals and uh, work in universities and as psychologists, we do too much labeling and denunciation 
uh, of the beliefs of people without understanding where they're coming from or what the value of those beliefs play in their lives. And just on the basis of that, I really recommend Haidt's book, uh, The Righteous Mind, uh, because uh, it, it, it broadens your viewpoint uh, and, and makes you better dealing with individuals. But anyway, these kids would say to me, I have to leave the room. Uh, my rabbi said, I am not allowed. God does not want me to know anything about um, Darwin because uh, this is uh, heresy. This is apostasy. And it took me a while to get my mind around that. And I would say to this youngster, I understand, uh, but this is a science course, and you signed up for a science course, and I'm holding you responsible for learning the science. So you have to make a decision. Um, do you want to include this in your life? If not, you could leave, uh, but you'll be tested on this material. I hold you responsible for knowing this material. And if it's that offensive to you, uh, drop the course. And many of them uh, were very upset by this. And some of my colleagues uh, who believe that uh, students come first and that we should, our job is to make them happy and comfortable <coughs> rather than give them a real education as we morally and intellectually believe it should be given, uh, would be upset with me. I have to respect their opinions and their viewpoints. And my response to that is I do respect their opinions and viewpoints. But I wasn't hired to be a cleric, a religious individual. Religiously, I was hired to teach a scientific course in psychology. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. And the curriculum that, and the reason they pay me such, excuse me, fortunes of money uh, is because, and I say that with my tongue in my cheek, is that um, <clears throat> I'm supposed to know something of value to be transmitted to these young people. And so I have to, <clears throat> unless I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I'm choking here, unless I'm, I'm uh, convinced by somebody that what I have to say is of no value, uh, this is what I hold to. This is what's important to me to do. So let me talk a little about evolution. The first thing I want to say is that if you look at the world as it has evolved, right, most of us reject that world. There's a basic premise, and that is, sooner or later, we stop eating lunch and we become lunch. That's the world, and I always, when people tell me God made the world in seven days, uh, one has to wonder about a God that created a system in which uh, we eat other beings and other things, whether it's animal or plant life, uh, some animals only eat plants, some animals eat animals, some eat both animals and plants, omnivores as we do, uh, but sooner or later, you stop having the ability to have lunch and you die or you're caught uh, by something that wants to eat you. Uh, even when we die, a bacteria that live within us and others that invade our dead body, eat us. So that the world is set up for eaters and the eaten. And this is a cycle that has been going on for billions of years. And we are part of, a, we're beings that have emerged from that cycle. 
So you really can't understand why people do as they do until we put it in the framework of evolution. Now, I'm not going to go through all of evolution. Let me see who's here. 503. Hello? Hello? Uh, hi, uh, Larry, it's Jim. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm just fine. I've, I've been listening um, with one interruption since uh, the beginning of your show. Uh, for some reason, my headphones pooped out, so oh. uh, I just decided I would call and listen on the phone. And Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it a great deal, uh, but I did miss the last minute or so. But okay. Well, the last minute I was talking about putting the the question that I raised last time, why would people pollute groundwater and then deny it? Right. Well, in other words, remember we talked about that last time, yes, and right. I blamed you for this show yeah. because you said, let's not diagnose them. This is normal behavior. I, 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 did, I did hear that. I, so my, my and I agree it's normal behavior, but to me, right. to understand human normal behavior, whether moral or not moral, is to put it in an evolutionary framework. Right. In other words, uh, one of the things that I don't think I've done quite enough in my own theory building is to put it in an evolutionary and an anthropological, in other words, really broaden the picture, broaden the context that helps can, can, explain can I, why human beings do what they do. Yes? Can I, can I just say that um, uh, I, uh, after you emailed me a few days ago, I did uh, get Jonathan Haidt's book, and I've I got completely through it about half an hour ago. Did you? So, uh, so I've got uh, I uh, I enjoyed much of it, uh, not quite all of it. Me too. Uh, and by the way, the book I, maddened I would me. Like I want to, to talk later about why this made me crazy. This book. I would I would like to uh, listen to your take on it. And okay, uh, but I don't let me. I want to build into it because um, the, my listeners may not fully understand where evolutionary psychology comes from and where it goes. Okay, so I'm doing a show today. I should have put more of this information into my advertisement for the show, uh, but that's okay. Um, I, you know, if people like this, the word will go around and I'll get a good right. listenership. Right. Okay, so we, we are eaten or we eat, and when we stop eating, eventually we become eaten. Right. And evolution took place, uh, as animals uh, uh, evolved through a process of uh, mutation, genetic mutation, and uh, selective, um, uh, what, what word am I looking for? Um, uh, my mind just went blank again. Um, natural selection. So let's talk about the giraffe and the giraffe's neck. Giraffes have long necks. According to evolution, the neck of the giraffe got longer over a long period of time when animals that were giraffe-like tried to reach up to the top of the trees where the better leaves would be nutritious for them. It's not that the neck got longer because they tried to reach up. It was that those animals that got a better diet because their necks were longer were the ones that survived and because these animals survived, they became more attractive to females. This is something interesting. Uh, there is also a process of sexual selection. Females, including our own, tend to look for males 
that will provide them with the best offspring. And so what we have now are giraffes, giraffes with the longest necks having more children that have longer necks. And this process continues over time until you get to the modern giraffe. All of what we are are adaptations that have come through the process of natural selection. Now, I'm not going to give a whole lecture on this. For those of you who are interested, there are many wonderful books that simplify an understanding of, of uh, evolution and where we are in the evolutionary scale uh, of things, that we are now the dominant species because with our technology and our social evolution, which I'll talk about in a little bit, we now can dominate the earth entirely so that it is under our control so that we can continue uh, to thrive and survive for much longer periods before we become lunch. And that's part of the problem we're going to talk about today because we don't know when to stop. There is no, there seems to be no limit on how much life we want and how much we're willing to do to the planet to feed ourselves, to clothe ourselves, to extend our lives, and ultimately to extend our numbers. Uh, we are now approaching a planet of 10 billion human beings, uh, and the uh, uh, effort to help 10 billion human beings survive and, and uh, be nurtured is becoming very prodigious and overwhelming for the planet. Uh, when, when I listen to conversations about uh, global warming and uh, climate change and the degradation of the environment, one of the things that's rarely ever spoken about is the population explosion. Um, some good news that I heard recently is that the uh, number of our uh, uh, offspring, the collective number of offspring, is slowing slightly. But we are approaching 10 billion. And only 100 years ago, uh, I'm not sure, maybe you know the statistic on this, Jim. I don't even think there was a billion people 100 years ago. Uh, yeah, I, think, I, don't, I, I don't know exactly. I yeah, but it, I think I, it was I, in the hundreds of millions. So we've done a fabulous job in extending our skills in order to survive and thrive as evolution wants us to. Now, this is the critical, a critical issue. Richard Dawkins, uh, who is a real religious hater, and I, I feel he shouldn't be doing this. In other words, I think uh, I agree with hate. You take a much more moderate position, uh, a more therapeutic position with people. Um, again, I'm going to sidetrack for a second. One of the things I learned as a therapist, and it works, is you don't tell people that they're morally wrong or that they're bad. I've never had a patient who came into therapy who already didn't believe they were bad because, again, they believed they were abnormal, and if they were abnormal or different, something was wrong with them. And that language permeates uh, how people think. There's something wrong with me. And these are moral judgments, unless we're talking about my, something wrong with my heart, my liver, or my brain. Uh, to say there's something wrong with me as a person is to say I'm morally defective, I'm ethically defective. Um, 
So I'm a good person, they tell me. And some of them are good people, and some of them, my God, their behavior towards their children, their behavior towards others, uh, was anything what I would make a judgment as good. There were parents I've worked with over the years, and I worked in a clinic for 25 years, where we used to kid ourselves, kid, uh, gee, this, this kid can never grow up with those parents. The only way to save this kid is to hire the mafia to wipe out the parents. And of course, that's not something any of us really did. Or not that I know that we did it. Uh, these kids were being destroyed. There wasn't a chance for them to become what we might call uh, functioning in a societal sense because of how deviant and difficult their upbringing was. So um, when we talk about uh, this, this, this idea of, of uh, development, um, we, we have uh, the issue of what are we through our genes? What's our goal? And the goal of our genes, as Dawkins says, is to propagate themselves. The modern view in biology is that we are, whether we like it or not, an instrument of passing our genes on into another generation. That's what makes them selfish. And so much of our behavior, moral and scientific, some of the things we love to do, involve uh, passing on our genes. From that point of view, what we evolved was a tremendous appetite for sex. And, and some of the moral, uh, not moral, uh, the evolutionary discussion of sexual behavior of humans and other animals is really wonderful and enlightening. Uh, for a man, passing on his genes is a delightful, pleasant, and cheap act. I use the word cheap in that evolutionary sense. It costs very little to have sex with a female. For the female, sex is a very expensive act. And one of the things that's happened in recent years is that now that women can have birth control and control their own uh, biological processes when it comes to sex, we've discovered that women like sex every bit as much as men. Once you lift the evolutionary demand, that sex will make them pregnant. Because having a child is an expensive act. It's a life-threatening act, uh, particularly before modern forms of, of uh, infant delivery. Um, there was a good deal of death and, and mutilation and difficulty that people had giving birth to children. And so much of the dance between men and women around sex really is well understood by the fact that a man has to offer a woman some kind of security and some kind of commitment through the time she gives birth and raises her children because when she's in her eighth and ninth month and thereafter, particularly if she's going to nurse that child, her life changes very, very more dramatically than the man's life. And so the whole notion and struggle between people really is best understood from this selfish gene point of view. Women look for men who have something to offer. Now, how much of this is conscious? And the answer is, unless you study evolution, it's not conscious. So much of this and so much of our behavior, uh, hate talks about this, 
in terms of uh, we live intuitively. We, 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 uh, and this is really such wonderful stuff when you start to think about it. Very liberating, liberating intellectually, but very, very uh, difficult to swallow if you live and believe the kind of fantasies that most of us have evolved about what life is in terms of love, romance, um, uh, moral goodness, commitment. Uh, we are animals, evolved animals, the dominant animal, and we have abilities that no other animal has. But nonetheless, unless we take the context of evolution, we really don't know where we are. So let me push on a little bit more. Most of us make massive commitments to those who have our genes, what, what evolutionists and biologists call kin selection. Uh, most of us can't uh, imagine the death of our own child. That child is 50% our genes. And from the point of view of us being an evolved creature, whose goal, conscious or otherwise, is to keep those genes alive, the whole notion of how much we love those children is really an evolved uh, affectation, an evolved emotion that's designed to make sure that our genes grow up and have gene receptacles of their own. Now, I know this doesn't sound very romantic, but I don't think you can understand or we can understand human behavior without it. Self-interest is in our interest. And what we are, according to evolutionists, is an individual, our characters involving self-interest. And what we've discovered is that sometimes and often we need more than our own kin committed to us while we're committed to them to survive, to flourish, and get our genes into the next generation. And therefore, and Hate's book, I think, does a very good job on this, and you'll agree or disagree with me, uh, Jim, on describing why we form groups and why we're groupish. Uh, Hate has some wonderful uh, images in his book he says that we are 90% chimpanzee and 10% bees, that we form hives. But what's fascinating is that when we extend our efforts to those who are not kin, that we form larger groups, our groups exist to further the interest of those in the group rather than extend it to people outside the group. So as individuals, we come first, our kin comes second, and our group comes third. But morality, he says, exists to bind the group together in a necessary way to dominate and compete in order to propagate and, and, and develop and do what we need to do to survive and flourish against other groups. Jim, you have anything to say? 
I, I don't have uh, much to say, just that I, uh, I felt that his exposition was extremely clear. Uh, I'm, uh, I can uh, really recommend uh, this book to anybody who's interested. In, yeah, I'd put in the uh, thing to see if maybe he'd come on the show. It, but he's it, already it was, very busy and very famous. He's he's really made some name for clear. himself. Uh, I I uh, I think that I uh, learned stuff from it. Uh, yes. Some of his conclusions, I'm a little bit shaky on. Right. But uh, now, where, but where I got uh, let me tell you where I got lost with hate. If we evolve morality, uh, let me make one more point uh, because he makes this point that basically our logic. Our intellect is used to justify those decisions that are really evolutionarily based and are out, out of consciousness. Basically, we're politicians, he said. And when he, he starts talking about politicians, he uses uh, Koch, uh, the, the former mayor of New York, who happened right. to be, I thought, a terrific mayor, who used to go around saying to people, not how are you doing, but how am I doing? Yeah, yeah. Because he said, that's what we all are. We're all politicians. In fact, Philip Tetlock, who he quotes, uh, I did quote in my own book, that we're all politicians. Uh, that, and, and that what we know about politicians is they have a remarkable ability to create bullshit about themselves, to create lies about themselves, uh, to justify why we should trust them. And they're remarkably good at that because we keep trusting the same kind of people over and over again. And I don't know how you get out of that. I really don't. Although unless we do, I think that uh, the trouble we're in as a, as a species uh, is, is really um, enormous. But so we bullshit ourselves. We are great creators of bullshit. Um, it took me a long time to appreciate when a student can come up with an argument that defeated mine. Early in my career, my pride was hurt, and I could become really nasty because my image of myself was always a, a defensive image about being the smart person. I was never much of an athlete, so I couldn't uh, dominate, and I couldn't get chicks because of my athletic ability. So it was my intellect. And then I discovered, by the way, back then, women were not really interested in, a, in, 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 in intellect. What's happening now is that more and more uh, people who go to college marry each other. There was a time 30, 40 years ago that a man looked for an attractive woman and a woman looked for a big, strong man uh, who could earn a living. Now, intellect really is the only way to earn a living. You have to have a college degree. And more and more, people are marrying the same kinds of people as themselves, uh, creating all kinds of interesting evolutionary and social problems. So we're great bullshit artists. Um, let me talk about Freud for a moment. Freud got a bad rap because of his so-called clinical theory. He said that every one of our problems has to do with repressed sexuality. And he insisted on it. And, and Freudianism and many of the analytic groupings uh, really became like cults. Uh, if you didn't believe in Freud, uh, then, then you were nobody 
unless you believed in Karen Horney, and if you didn't believe in her, you were nobody, unless you believed in Harry Stack Sullivan, and if you didn't believe in him, you were nobody. And this kind of, of uh, cultishness uh, or groupishness is really well explained by evolution of groups. Our team, our group has to dominate the others. And we're not even aware that that's pushing the way the group operates. Part of what bothered me with his theory is he doesn't really deal with the dark side of this. Um, the dark side of this, he deals with in about 10 pages on orthodoxy. He says the problem is when people get so steeped in their morality, so steeped in their religion, that that's all they can see and that they become rigid. Um, and he uses fascism as an example that ugly things happen. The problem is, I believe, it, that in order to explain why a corporation, which he calls a superorganism, that is, this is a group, a, becomes a defended boundary group that's designed for one thing, make the most products, convince most people to come under the sway of the group, um, these superorganisms behave uh, in an insulated way. They are orthodox. And the, his discussion on orthodox, it seemed to me, should have been much more graded. Because one of the things I'm concerned about, and I've been concerned about for a very long time, is the ease with which we dehumanize others. That we turn them into objects, we turn them into things. There are now going on very interesting things if you go to certain football games. If you go to a giant game in New York, well, it's now in, out in New Jersey, and you put on certain uniforms, you can be attacked and severely beaten by people wearing giant uniforms. Uh, if you go to a Boston, um, a Boston uh, Red Sox game and you put on a Yankee hat, you literally can be beaten to death. Literally. And people who come from Boston and insist on putting on a Boston Red Sox sweatshirt when they come into Yankee Stadium literally are in danger. The ability for human beings to dehumanize people from another group that we are genetically and unconsciously designed to dominate is to me a serious fly in the ointment. And so when I started to think about why could corporations hire public relations people to produce real bullshit to hide the fact that we're polluting the water or we're polluting the air or that we're killing the bees with insecticides that the bees can't deal with, which can threaten huge 60% of the entire food supply of the planet, which requires pollination for its uh, replication, requires that process. Um, why? It's because of a capacity to dehumanize anybody who stands in the way of what he uses this term of the hive. Bees carry out their process in a mindless way. 
And so I think that's what's happening in America now. In America, you now have an orthodoxy of dehumanization on the left as well as the right. It's not just the right. When I was in the city university, uh, there was a strong, uh, I would call left wing, that not only dehumanized anybody who thought they were going to vote Republican, but anybody who disagreed with certain kinds of orthodoxies. And some of the worst, scary offenders were women who defined themselves as feminists. Uh, I went to a wonderful conference uh, on, on evolution and sexual differences. And when I, for example, one of the things I learned at this conference is that from the moment they're born, little boys and little girls deal with space differently. Little girls and little boys spend time looking at mother's face. But little girls, baby girls, spend much more time looking at the face of the mother and into the face of people, while little boys spend some time but much more time looking out into space. Isn't that a great revelation? Yeah, right. From the moment we're born, there are inherited tendencies. The upper body of the human male was designed to throw things. We love games where you throw things. Baseball, football. We're throwers. Take a lever. I, I played golf today. Take a lever, and boy, you could throw something real far distance, this little white ball. Not easy to do. Uh, and the use of space becomes very important. That's not that females don't do these things. But everybody who knows anything about people knows how much more social. Uh, my wife says to me, you're a good psychologist, but ask me about this person or that person, and I'll tell you. And you know what? In the 50 years we've been married, she's almost always right. I deal with things cerebrally and theoretically. She deals with them on a very basic, practical level and can size up a person much more quickly than I. And most of the women I know are really much better at sizing up on an emotional level uh, than most of the men I know. Well, most of the men I know can only talk about sports and throwing things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And these, some of these people I really love and like. Um, but one of the things, I've always been different from so many of the men that I, I know and involved with uh, is that to have a, a discussion about how do you feel or how does this person feel or what's the motive for this behavior is simply uh, off, off ground. And it's not pathological. As you said, it's normal behavior. So what's normal? Normal is our ability to dehumanize others when we see them as a threat to our own intentions. And I believe that to be so. Right. And the question then is, is there a way to ever overcome this? Let me stop for a moment. I don't know if anybody wants to call in. Uh, I got a letter from somebody from Texas, Jim, who yeah. said that I'm always asking for people to call in. She says, I would never call in. She says, I download your show and I listen to it in the car when I'm going to work. I said, oh, I wrote back to her. I left my number. And I said, maybe sometime you can call it. Because I'm really getting responses to these shows that now run in the thousands. That's great. That's wonderful. 
Uh, but I would love, because I, I, I see, I can't thank you enough for calling in, because it makes I, an enormous difference to have a conversation, even if sure. I hold, you know, forth, because uh, uh, I know there's somebody really listening, and I can ask, what do you think? Then simply talking into empty space, no matter how many thousands I, I of people. To, I wanted yeah, to say ahead. something about uh, about what hate said about. Uh, liberals versus libertarians yes. versus uh, conservatives, and which uh, it, it was the it was the part of the book that I really uh, resonated with because he had a lot of research to back it up. Yes, and that was what, that was powerful. That they, all this he, research that went into the book. What what he showed was that um, liberals uh, uh, tend to emphasize very strongly. Um, uh, caring about people, uh, they have uh, strong concerns of, about liberty and uh, uh, concerns about fairness. But what, what seems striking to me was that uh, conservatives also are concerned about those things, but much more so than liberals, they uh, uh, place emphasis also on loyalty, on authority right and on uh what he calls sanctity which yes. which is really code words for religion yes uh, so uh, that that really helped me to uh to have a better sense of where uh my conservative friends are coming from yes uh, and me too when, when i we have that an was fabulous yeah. but you see then i one of the things i've been struggling with then is a response to him um, because one of the things that very conservatives, Islamists, for example, which are now really in a very, at least the people who you hear from, a very conservative mode in terms of religion, they hate democracy. Because to me, and I wrote, I talked about this many times on my show and I wrote about it, to me, and again, this is my value system, and I realize it's my value system, I can't imagine not being embedded in groups of people, not having love in my life, not having family responsibility. Uh, my son-in-law left my daughter and, and my granddaughter when she was three months old, and he's gone. I have trouble getting my mind around somebody who could live as he does, as a rolling stone, running from place to place and being isolated as a human being. I can't... I have trouble understanding that mm -hmm. on the other hand i have trouble understanding being embedded so much in your group that we is more important than i because to me one of the things that makes life really worthwhile and joyful is having enough i enough individuality to say something that's unique to yourself and hence, to be creative, to create some, whatever the creation was. I used to go through this with my students, and they say, but I can't write books. I can't do what you do. I said, do you draw? Do you paint? One student got up very excited. She says, I bake. And when I <laughs> bake, I bake for myself. And what I bake best for myself, my family loves the most. Uh -huh. You see, that is creativity. 
Sure. And the joy that comes, as he puts it, from being part of the hive and dancing together or being you know, part of the stadium and being part is a we, which I can't imagine not being we. But I also have trouble with the I. And the struggle I see in America between liberals and conservatives is that I is very important for the liberals, more so than we. And I think he says that. Yes. And we is more important for others than the I. If your I, the word you hear all the time, when patients would, would start to have conflict with their family, because I realize as I look back, I was inculcating a set of values. My belief is you can't be happy without your family unless they're really destructive, and then you've got to create a new family, find new people in your life. But you can't be happy unless you can talk in your own voice and stand on your own feet. Take responsibility, not only for others, and the response they all got is, that guy is making you selfish. The word, you're disobedient and you're selfish, is what you hear is the operating principle where we completely outnumbers or overwhelms the concept of I. And we did swing through a period in the 70s. I remember Christopher Lash's book, uh, on the new narcissism, it was all me, all I. Right? Uh, I used to hear students say things like, until you love yourself, you can't love another. And my response was, until you've been genuinely loved, where you really experience that that person cares more for you than they do for themselves, or equally for themselves, you don't know what love is. The capacity to love, I think, is built into us, again, through evolution. To love our children, to be committed you know, to certain kinds of things, to really love, to give up of ourselves. And yet, I don't think you, it comes into fruition because you can invent it. He talks about that very well. You could reason yourself into love. It can't be done. It has to be experienced. Um. I don't know where we're going as a culture, because that's one of the concerns I have, that this idea that we have the right to our own bodies, particularly women have the right to their bodies, that they can control the, uh, where their genes go or don't go. I mean, the whole an issue of, of abortion and the whole issue of, of uh, birth control isn't that exactly what we're talking about from an evolutionary point of view? Of course. Yeah. And, and this um, is where we are. And you have more and more of this real roll-up among what we call conservatives, or, call the, or I call the hard right, that what's important is restoring the proper balance between men and women, which is women don't control the birth cycle. The, the group controls the birth cycle, and particularly men control the birth cycle. Right, right. And, and I think we're heading for, I don't know where we're heading, but we're heading for a real clash on that issue. Yeah, well, Can you imagine at, North been, Carolina and all these states passing these laws? Yeah, we've been, the, we've been clashing for a number of years, actually. Um, I, 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 uh, you said... Uh, you weren't quite clear about your rejoinder to uh, 
to hate, and I, I had two sorts of thoughts about that. Go ahead. Uh, one is that his uh, he, he ends up by basically quoting again Rodney King. Why can't we all just get along? Right. <laughs> and 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 he makes a plea for uh, which is perfectly reasonable for uh, uh, taking the time to listen to the other yes. person's point of view before jumping in, which I I I, I think is well and good. Yeah. Um, however. Uh, to me, it seems that he is teetering on the edge of uh, accepting uh, all points of view as having yes. value. And, exactly. Uh, and, equal and I don't, value. And I don't really agree with that. I think there yes. are some equal points value. of view. Equal value. Yes, yes. Uh, that's what I meant. Uh, yes. and, equal value. And uh, to, to me, that's, that's uh, not correct. The second point that, that I would make is that... Um, it it seems to me that some people, uh, and, and by that I mean really some uh, 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 some uh, uh, religious points of view, some uh, political points of view, are better than others at looking at evidence. Uh, by that I mean looking at. Uh, scientific evidence yes. and drawing conclusions from that yes. than are others, and uh, he doesn't say anything about that. No, he in, doesn't. In, his in, in other words, and, what I think has happened that's transformed the liberal population is the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, and that in this country is really under attack. Right. When, when Rodney uh, uh, Romney's uh, uh, manager was asked about all the facts that Romney has distorted, he said, this election is not going to be decided on facts. Right. <laughs> which, which was probably true, but... Uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, that was something that 30 years ago, if anybody said, it would be over. Right. But nobody got upset about it. You yeah. know, somebody wrote recently that the press has given up any kind of critical discrimination between points of view that are factual. Uh, and therefore, in the eyes of somebody like you and I who have been trained in science, has a certain superiority, at least at certain times. And what that was is that Republicans say the earth is flat. Democrats disagree. Yeah. <laughs> because you have to be fair to all points of view. Right. right. So I agree Condemning people and calling them fascist and sick doesn't really get you anywhere. And, and by the way, the image I had when I read that whole section on, on having these polite dialogues is the song from Oklahoma. Oh, the cowman and the farmer should be friends. Right, right. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, the farmers were rubbed out until the army came in. And establish order at the law of gun. <laughs> right. Anyway, um, gee, this was a good show. I thank you again for coming on. Well, I'm 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 really happy that uh, that I had enough of a heads up that I was able to get a hold of the book and and read it because uh, and, and I really do thank you for your recommendation because uh, uh, much of it I found to be. Uh, enlightening and yes. certainly very well reasoned, and 
Um, I would recommend it to uh, any of your listeners, The Righteous yes. Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Correct. Um, and, 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 you could, you know, I, I found it in this little bookstore in Southampton, and I, I picked it, it up and I library. said to my wife, oh, I have to read something that's not fiction. And I literally in three days read that book and another book. By the way, I have a, no- a novel. I, I I don't know if I recommended The Sun to you, S-O-N. Oh, uh-uh. oh who's the author? It's going to bother me now. Since I'm doing this on the air, I should know the author. Hold on. I, I can go to my uh, e-pad here and find out who the author of The Sun. It's about the... about the settling of Texas oh. and this, about the uh, war. It goes through the whole fascinating business that um, the Mexicans were originally in Texas and the Apaches really drove the Mexicans out. And then there was a war between the Comanches and the Apaches, which really makes, you know, one of the things I loved about the book is that in one of the things we liberals have done is you know create the idea that the noble savage savages are noble uh, right. these people were not noble the Indians they were bloodthirsty yeah. yeah they knew it had to kill and torture in ways that uh, other societies have not even begun to invent so the Comanches destroyed the Apaches then the Anglos came the Texans and destroyed the Comanches and then, as he puts it in the book, the uh, white man destroyed the land, destroyed the air, and destroyed the water with the oil. Uh, and it really gives you a tremendous insight into the politics and the mental attitude of, of um, here it is, The Sun by Philip Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R. Okay. Uh, I think this almost is great literature. And it goes through the family, and, and the central character is a boy, young boy, who as a teen, his family is uh, killed and tortured by the uh, Comanches. He's allowed to live, and he becomes a Comanche. He becomes a warrior. And then it's about his descendants up until modern times. Uh, fa- absolutely incredible book, I think. So for those of you who are going to hear this, uh, I'm selling people's books. Uh, Philip Meyer, The Sun. Absolutely, uh, a, to me, a wonderful read that provides a real historical, because I think it's historically accurate to, to, uh, in the way in which the book is, comes, it comes across as having a ring of truth. No real good guys and no real bad guys, just human beings whose groups seek to dominate and how they dehumanize what what the uh, Anglo's did to the Mexicans, and and uh, it's just incredible. It's just absolutely. Uh, after a while, I had to come up the air. I felt I was the book. I was drowning in the book because there there's so much of the brutality and so much dehumanization that goes on, and it really fits beautifully with an evolutionary theory of where human beings are and our capacity to do damage right. to, to, to others and ultimately then ourselves. So 
So I'm finished for tonight. I have four more minutes. I don't know if anybody wants to call in. I now have to think of a, another program. By the way, uh, should I schedule, let's say, for two weeks, the long-delayed discussion you and I are going to have on what I call the medical model? Uh, uh, absolutely. I'd be okay, really happy I'm going to, to do that. Okay. Do me, do me a favor. Send sure. me an email setting up part of what I'm going to write as advertisement for. What, what do you want to see this discussion? How do you want to uh, structure it? Okay. Would you do that? Uh, I will, uh, I'll send off something to you in the next two days. I love it. And again, okay. thank you. And say, and say hello to your wife. I will do that. Um, when are you going to Spain? Uh, in about three weeks. And how, where are you going? Uh, northern, uh, northern Spain. Oh, Tauk? Um, yes. Oh, I'm jealous. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay. I, Thank I you, my you friend. <laughs> Take care. Talk to you next time. Bye.